Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. We're coming to you live on the Green Room app, uh, hosted by Spotify. Uh, coming live right after the end of the Hawks Bucks game, played without Trey Young, played without Giannis Antetokounmpo. So it is now three two Bucks after a one twenty three one twelve victory film for Milwaukee. We'll be talking about that game about. The Suns advancing to the NBA Finals for the first time in Chris Paul's career and answering some questions that we got from you, the listeners. But before we do any of that, Dan, how's it going? I am, as you know, a bit frazzled at the moment, but um, Noah says it is 11 o'clock. Hey, we're doing a bonus mailbag for your weekend travels. That is what's happening here. And we're going to have a special podcast to release on Monday for y'all. That's why we're doing this now. Um don't complain about the extra content, Noah. Jeez. Uh, it was disappointing to like not have Trey or Giannis in this game, uh, but I obviously care about their long-term health more. You did say, though, bef- well, I guess, how are you doing? I guess that matters more, theoretically. I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I, you said I you had a like I've just been, Rumor has yeah, it. I've been, I've been in a snarky mood all week on Twitter, I think. I've, I've just been easily irritated, and it happened again tonight. Just because I'm I'm tired of the laziest, most cliche form of complaining about a team's performance, which is just citing a free throw disparity without any context whatsoever. And just if your team isn't shooting as many as many free throws as the other team, it must mean that the refs are favoring it and rigging it. And Adam Silver is pulling the strings behind the scenes and has a desired outcome that he wants to see. The impetus for this was the third quarter of the Atlanta-Milwaukee game in which Milwaukee shot 12 free throws and Atlanta shot zero. So, you know, as as a Hawks fan, I, I tend to have a lot of Twitter follows who are Hawks fans as well. And almost universally, I see complaints about that disparity. Did you watch the game? Did you see Milwaukee attacking the basket on every possession, crashing the offensive glass, having, a, I believe, six to one offensive rebound disparity in that quarter? Did you see Atlanta settling for contested jumper after contested jumper every single time down the floor? If they got a switch on to Brooke Lopez, here comes a contested step back three pointer with no hope of drawing contact. The Bogdan Bogdanovich flagrant foul when he closed out on Chris on Chris Middleton in the corner was ridiculous. I'll give the Atlanta fans that. But this quarter could have had an even larger free throw disparity. And just citing that 12 to 0 number without providing any context whatsoever or looking at how the teams played, it's just lazy. It's just a cliche and it shouldn't happen. It's ridiculous. I love spicy. That's my rant. Or, That's my yeah, rant. That wasn't very snarky. I think that was more kind of spot on. Um, what are you expecting leading into game six? It feels like it entirely depends on who's available, right? I mean, if Trey Young is going to play, dealing with a bone bruise right now, he was questionable for this game. He went through shoot around and warm ups and was then ruled out. So clearly, like, there's some possibility of that happening in game six. Then Atlanta has a much better chance, you know, obviously. If Giannis plays, then everything changes, and we have no idea what to expect for that timetable. But if these current rosters, as they stood for Game 5, are in play again, I just I don't see a path to victory for this Atlanta team. They, they don't have a counter to an aggressive Drew Holiday. You know, I, I was telling you, Dan, before we started recording, like, 
if Drew Holiday is the key to everything Milwaukee is doing on offense and is probing into the paint and setting up everyone and you know initiating everything at the point of attack, and Atlanta has no personnel to stop him without sacrificing bodies on the wings, like why is Chris Dunn on this roster? It, it, it feels like there's issues on defense. There's issues with the interior defense against Brooke Lopez, who is far more aggressive in Game 5. There are issues on offense because ultimately, without Young, who is very much the head of the offensive snake on a nightly basis, where is the production coming from? Bogdanovich had a phenomenal shooting game. He was really the lone bright spot for Atlanta in this Thursday night contest. But you have Lou Williams initiating, you have Bogdanovich initiating, you have Kevin Herter initiating, and none of those guys are who you want to get everyone involved. And the strength of this Atlanta team is how diverse the offensive attack can be, but you need someone who can set it up. And there isn't an answer to that question unless Young is healthy. So unless the availability of the stars changes, it's not going to go well for the Hawks, I don't think. It's probably in their best interest. Like Even if Giannis and Trey are both back, I think that's a good thing for for Atlanta. Do you... My writing teachers, let's go from Tony. Tony, Tony. welcome, welcome to the room. Um, is so after Atlanta spent this money in free agency on Bogdanovich, on Gallo, on Chris Dunn himself. He granted he was injured for a long time, but they have not; they've just not used him. Basically, is and he was never going to be the initiator for them. Is it a concern for you? that they don't have that? Or do you envision them if they're healthier next season? Even Hunter, because he was doing, people forget, he was an onset candidate for most approved player, was doing more stuff off the dribble. But I don't think, I think Bogdanovich would come closest to being the, the, the guy closest to being able to run lineups without Trey. And so if he's not that guy, and he is, he is banged up, but if he's not that guy, then you still don't have that guy. No, I, I think you need to, search long and hard for a viable backup point guard because Trey is ultimately irreplaceable and this roster is built around that irreplaceability. But even when Bogdanovich is playing well, even when DeAndre Hunter is available, you still need that that second point guard. And it's just not there right now. Uh, Dunn has not panned out, whether it's because of the injuries that prevented him from really being worked into the rotation. They made the move for Lou Williams, who had a great scoring night, but... A lot of turnovers. Tony's suggesting Rajon Rondo for Atlanta. And I guess like maybe that would have been better in this particular situation as awful as he as he played throughout the postseason. But like you gotta look externally for that. I can't I can't stop laughing about that one, Tony. I appreciate that. Do you think well I'm I'm gonna be honest, do you think Rondo wouldn't have helped them here, right? No, he, he wouldn't have helped them. I don't think, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have helped them. He might have been, like, more useful in this specific scenario when you just need someone to get everyone involved. But even then, like, <laughs> he, there are so many shortcomings, I'm not sure that's a great idea. Hey, look, Cameron Payne's music might be playing during the offseason. That could be someone that, that they would target. That but, could be really so you're, fun. The, so I mean, I think you could from- ultimately, like, kind of run it back. You just need that one supplementary piece. This is not that an indictment of the core. It's it, you need moves around the periphery because you have to be able to account for a situation like this where Young isn't available for a game or two, or to prevent him from needing to play forty minutes a game. 
my thing is, is it kind of is an indictment on the court at this point because the money they spent, look, they're further than anyone expected. I don't want to hear, you know, we did the, the whole viral asterisk rant between you and I last time, but they're here. And so they're close. But the fact that that's still after what they did last offseason, that this is their biggest hole. And again, it wouldn't have mattered. Trey Young sits out. You have someone to to run the offense. It wouldn't have mattered. Like Trey Young, losing Trey Young, even against the Bucks team doesn't have Giannis, you're screwed. But overall, the fact that this, and they did tread water at points in the season without Trey Young, but the fact that this is still kind of your problem, I don't want to say it's an indictment of last offseason, but I actually think it's a, it's a pretty big deal. It is a pretty big deal. There's, there's no doubt about that. I do like Tony's more serious suggestion of TJ McConnell for Atlanta and free agency. That would be a fun fit, but both for the point of attack defense and for the initiation skill. You know, not a, not a super glamorous signing, but I think that's the kind of move that these Hawks need to be looking at. It's also, it's also a little bit tough to get a full picture because as much focus as there's been on injuries throughout this postseason, I'm not sure that there's been enough attention paid to just how injured this Atlanta team has been throughout the entire season because it did prevent continuity. It did derail the Hunter improvement and the Cam Reddish experiment and all of these pieces who are now attempting to play integral roles in such a high-pressure situation and really adjusting on the fly. So maybe had the injury bug not been quite so pervasive throughout the regular season, we aren't really having this conversation because the team has figured out better ways to initiate offense. I want to ask you this last question, though, and I'm not trying to – I feel like this is kind of raining on the Hawks' progress this year, which is is unfair a little bit. But would, with the wings, when you look at Cam Reddish, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter – and how close all of them are getting to being on their second contracts. Is this a point where you consider maybe consolidating those, using those in addition to other stuff to find the piece that you're talking about? Or you're very much, Tony East mentions TJ McConnell in free agency. You would rather go that route and have what projects is like this. Yeah, well, they've even gotten like good minutes from Okungu at points during the postseason. That's like a 12 man I've been really impressed with him. I've been really impressed with him. So theoretically, you're at the point then where it'd be like this, you're going to prioritize depth rather than trying to consolidate into maybe someone who's a, because I don't know that you can, we saw it in Phoenix this year, but there was also in Phoenix, you could have Chris Paul or Devin Booker on the court at one time every game. The Hawks don't have that yet. That like, it's, you know, it's Bogdanovich isn't the same. Gallo certainly isn't the same. So would you be opposed to using those guys, maybe not alone, but consolidating some of that young talent? Or do you think that's sort of an over pay when you're talking about someone to supplement Trey Young's offense rather than getting this other star. I would be good with that. I mean, I think what you're suggesting is like packaging together Reddish, Herter, and a couple of picks for like Damian Lillard. And I think that's a great idea. <laughs> that's too much. I, I can give... read the subtext. I can read your subtext here. You know, I have the benefit of looking at you on Skype while we're recording this. So I see, I see it in your eyes. All I'm going to say is if you're doing that deal, Portland, how many, like Portland probably to send you back Robert Covington and CJ McCollum too. Like that's right, way too that much value fair. to give up for Dame. But in all seriousness, uh, I do wonder if Atlanta is kind of a sneaky inclusion on the star market. If someone, you know, Bradley Beal becomes available, do they, does Atlanta have enough pieces that could be packaged together in a, con, in a consolidation trade to look at that kind of option? I think they would be. Just because of I think all the they're more likely to now because of how these pieces have shown out. I mean, we saw Herder perform in a big game. We've seen, you know, Reddish is, is back and at least doing something now. Um, 
who knows what to expect from John Collins on a nightly basis at this point, but the, the pieces are there. I'd be curious, is, does that skew too much towards all offense? But I guess it doesn't matter because Bradley Beal and Trey Young are not what you would consider two-way players. And that's where it would sort of run into some issues. But I would be all for the Hawks going that route, to be clear. I would as well. If nothing else, it would be fun. Um, I think we have to pour one out for the Suns before we get to – we have a t- – oh, Pascal Siakam in Atlanta. That's an I like interesting that. one. I like that That's one. an interesting one. That's just – does – I mean, does he really give you secondary shot creation? Or is he just going to dribble and, and spin? I call it – He could spin his way around nowhere. a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just not That suggestion was also defenders. courtesy of Tony East, longtime friend of NBA math and both of us. Tony, um, if you want to speak at any point, point, we are we are more than willing to have you on as well, just so you know. Up oh, and immediately followed by a request. Yeah. How's it going? Have- I'll talk for a few minutes. I'm about to record my own pod, so I need to warm up the vocal cords, you know. That's perfect. Yeah, if you need to like sing any vocal exercises, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, plug away. No, I will will not be plugging, but um, (laughs) I will. It's Locked On Pacers. Listen to it. I've been on it, so they definitely slum it from time to time, but it's a fun (laughs) podcast. Yeah, when when this Warriors-Pascal stuff came out, I was like, wow, why would they trade Pascal? But irrelevant to that, I thought about Pascal and the Hawks. I was like, wow, that actually kind of makes sense. For, for Pascal and the Hawks, at least. I haven't thought about it for the Raptors, but I thought it was a fun time to jump in and say that because I haven't had a chance to air that thought anywhere. So what are the odds? I love well, that. If you're, yeah, I mean, you're going to reset, you're replacing too? John Collins. Yeah, so... Oh, no. That, that Why would you replace me? John Collins? Wait, I okay, so what's the framework here? Let's let's talk through this. I just assumed this was a situation. So first, you're, Toronto landing number four probably incentivizes them in this scenario to be like, hey, we're going to start over. And Pascal is going on 28, right? Is he 27? What is he? So you don't necessarily view him as part of your core. And why wouldn't you pair him with John Collins? They complement each other, no? Or do you think you're not getting enough rebounding up front or something? Masai Fromo, will you please listen to to my offer uh, very quickly? (laughs) I'm ready. Okay. Uh, uh, Danilo Gallinari, for money purposes. Uh, Very very minimal, important value here. Uh, Cam Reddish. The 20th pick in the upcoming NBA draft. And DeAndre Hunter, do we have a deal? Or have I oversold my hand? I don't I think know if that's enough for Toronto. Yeah, you're right. But then it, what else can the Hawks do that doesn't make that just scary for them? Oh, Kongu, no. was he in that deal? I didn't hear his name. No, like I, I, feel like no. I feel like that's close, though. I think Hunter's trajectory at the beginning of the season at least makes it close enough to the point that you can probably throw in a few future draft considerations and make it happen if Toronto yeah. is sold on going the rebuilding route. And if that's the case, like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Okay, there we go. See, the other thing with the Hawks, and you guys were kind of hinting at this before we post more of my Zim completely, is, like, I would worry about them running too fast. Like, you really overexceed expectations in year one, so they do something like that, and then yep. it, doesn't help, it doesn't help them enough, and they don't have the asset pool anymore. But Pascal is close to being the guy you do it for, so I, I thought it was very interesting. I, that's I, I do think he's idea. a guy you can do it for, but yeah. I, I do think like this, this roster, my only rebuttal to that point is that this roster feels like it has reached a point where you can kind of straddle those two timelines. There yeah. is enough youthful intrigue that you can continue to progress that way because you're not throwing in every chip. Even, I mean, even in this scenario, you still have a Kongwu there. You still have Herder. You have more room to re-sign Herder. 
you don't know what you're going to do with John Collins. So I, I feel like Atlanta has become the rare team that can kind of get ahead of its skis a little bit because it has that fallback option. That's true. That's definitely true. And I think Dan was about to talk about the Collins uh, Siakam potential fit too, which is like good enough that you could even swing that. And then if that doesn't work, you have the trade chance to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Collins sorry. to this me is, is just like season goal. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're moving Collins as part, like he needs to be on bigger money for you to move him, and he will be obviously now. But like signing trades are weird. Um, so like next season, mid season, if it's not working out, and he passes his you know trade by date or can trade date, uh, that would be super interesting. The other player, and uh, Oklahoma City fans will get mad at me for mentioning it, but Shea Gilgis Alexander would be so perfect for this team. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I feel like he would be perfect for most teams. I'm, but I'm saying like because. People get too caught up in timeline, and I very much recognize that a 22-year-old Shea is your timeline. At the same time, if you get a big enough offer, uh, he's about to be maxed out. You don't, you have all these picks. That can kind of either complement his max salary or complicate your, your situation. So if you get a large enough offer, I would consider it, especially because – and I'm not a doctor, so this is like the worst take in the world. Whenever I see like plantar fascia injuries, I get super – Super nervous. And so if Toronto, let, let's say Toronto came and said, we'll give you number four, uh, Ananobi for Shea and number 16 and like Kendrick William or something. Uh, I might, I'm going to consider that if I'm Oklahoma City and I'm not going to lie. If the Hawks threw the bag at me and the bag being Hunter picks galore, Okungwu, I'm going to, I'm going to think about it. I mean, you said the magic word for Sam Presti already, which is picks. <laughs> so once once that enters the equation, who knows what the hell is going to happen? Tony, yeah, he's going to campaign to increase to twenty roster spots per team at some point. <laughs> I'm assuming, right? But Tony, before you have to go record, you want to answer one of our mailbag questions for us? Oh, yeah, is it about the Pacers by chance? I have no idea. Dan has uh, access to all of them, so he's going <laughs> to throw sure, something your way. I like mailbag. Oh. I- do you care? We don't have a Pacers question, which... Um, no, I don't care. Like, I like talking about other teams. I talk about the Pacers enough. Okay. Um, where do you rank? This question comes from... Well, I'm not going to say where it comes from because then it spoils it. Where do you rank DeJounte Murray on the point guard list? And this comes from Wejante Worry. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh <laughs> Uh, I don't have a list of point guards in front of me, but not maybe top 20. I, is he the best point guard on his own team? I'm a big Derek White guy. Is that a hot take for the show? No, also because DeMar DeRozan is te- technically point- on that team. Yeah, true. He's also a point guard now. Yeah. How about this? Um, let's, let's frame it. Let's, let's make you throw him on the crystal basketball scale here. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, is eight all-star is nine all-star? Nine is all-star. Eight is high-end starter. I think I'd do seven or eight. Let me think about that. His defense is like phenomenal. I don't think, like, if I could write about anything, I would. I would want to write a piece about his defense at some point because it's very good. But his offense is not not that like like unrefined self creators are the hardest players to grade, you know, because you never know if it's going to come around and they could just be like like Eric Bledsoe on offense forever, and that's not good. Uh, so <laughs> I like Dejounte, but there, I he's kind of older for a young player, which is a an oxymoron, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. And I, younger than I Derek White, still, right? 
I Derek White is very old for a young player. Yeah, uh, definitely. But you know, he's definitely good, like solid starter for a long time. But I don't think he'll ever reach the All Star level. So yeah, seven or eight on the on the crystal ball scale. I'm in the same boat. I think I'm leaning a little more strongly towards the eight, just because of this improvement he showed as a finisher this year. Like getting getting to the basket a little less frequently, but he he could knock down everything in that range, whether he was finishing with power or you know using an, uh, an increasing arsenal of tricks around the hoop. Sixty four point nine percent within three feet. Like that was wow. a, that was a big stride from the last three years or the first three years of his career, I should say. But yeah, I think that's the right range. I think also his I was just going to say his decision making as an initiator has gotten better. Um, part of that might be because they've given some of it to DeRozan, so you've seen his turnover rate um, sort of go in the right direction. But even in transition, he feels like he's smarter there. And I think you know this was year two of him shooting forty five plus percent between ten feet and the three point line. So there's like there's that in between game there. And I do think I said this about Marcus Smart before he kind of turned a willingness to shoot threes is important, even if they're not falling at a, at a high clip. And so the fact that this season um, he attempted 3.3 per 36 minutes, not a ton, but a career high and is continuing upwards. That absolutely matters. I just don't know if he's ever going to be the guy that hits these, you know, these off the dribble jumpers, like even his in-between looks, they feel like very slow paced and methodical. And you can see them coming from a mile away where DeRozan can use more of his, changes of direction directions and is a little bit quicker with his uh with his shot motion yeah he, he's got a little bit of oladipoitis where there's like one in every <laughs> games where like the second he catches the ball like i can tell you what he's gonna do it's so weird there's some players where they just have those games where like even you guys and i like as fans not even playing in the game or like hardcore scouts we're like oh i know he's gonna shoot like on this touch you know you just know and depot is really bad about that and murray is a little bit bad about that and especially when he's got that slow ish midi game it's not there if he had a floater i think he he could potentially reach all-star level at some point but he doesn't at all like that helped carries levert's development a ton as he got that floater and then he was way harder to guard on his drive so that would help him a lot too i really do i do like him he is good like watching him and Pirtle defend pick and rolls is outstanding they're so good at that but uh his offensive ceiling just scares me just enough to to not know where to put him as soon as you said oladipoitis my knee started hurting and then i realized it just because <laughs> yeah. i was sitting funny I still keep reading um, that he wanted Max this offseason. I'm like, oh boy, oh, oh my. Right up there with Dennis Schroeder wanting nine figures in his next contract, too. <laughs> I aspire to have that much self-confidence. Tony, we did actually just get a Pacers question to come in. Oh, really? Okay, I'll answer a Pacers question. It's literally three words. Comes from Rob Uh-oh. Sager. Turner or Sabonis? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. What? Uh, have you guys seen the video? Just so you know, we it? only have like, 30 40 more minutes of recording <laughs> <laughs> have, have you guys seen the video of the comedian who's like pretending to be an ikea worker making fun of uh people who yes. ask stupid questions in the store it was very funny so i have a screen cap of that video of of the part where he says and what do your eyes say and i know that if you haven't watched the video you have no idea what that's in reference to but i have that screen cap because sometimes i use it for basketball analysis and it's kind of strange because i really like miles turner i think he's very good especially in the right context, incredible defender. And then this year, he played a lot with the bench, and his on-off numbers are ridiculous, and Bjorkren Ball really suited his play style, and he really popped off the page and had more confidence and was a very talented player. And now all these people are thinking, hey, maybe Miles Turner is a little better than Sabonis, or they, they, he's got more value to this team, and they could trade Sabonis if it's a big haul. And sometimes I just want to reply with the, what do your eyes say? 
meme because when you watch the Pacers, <laughs> Sabonis is just better. He's just a better player. Like he he has the ball a lot, and people point to his touches as a negative, but like he does something good with it all the time with his handoffs or his screens or good finishing, or he's even got a decent jumper from 15 feet and. He's he's a good defender of centers. Uh, when they made him chase guys around the perimeter all season long, which I'm sure you guys read a bunch of stats about, he was miserable. But he's a good defender of centers. Uh, really likes his team, likes being a pacer, and is just a better player, right? So it's, it's what's your eyes say for me? So my answer is is Demontis Bonus. He's better. That said, I do really like Miles Turner. So it's, it's I hate answering that question, but it's the bonus for me. My, my follow-up question there is: Are you aware that Miles Turner and Dan are best friends now? Oh, I oh God! That. No, Miles Turner. Miles Turner <laughs> was so mad when I didn't put him on the, my my projected top three ballot for Defensive Player of the Year after a month into the season, and I did it rather than a live look as where I thought oh, it would I end up. I you about this. I remember that. Yeah, it turned out I was right, but I do regret the way I approached it because there was way too much confusion on Twitter, and the Pacers account was mad. Miles Turner was mad. So um, I regret that whole situation. But I'm sure that was the most common question that you've been asked by people in general who aren't like nitty gritty into the Pacers. My stance on it, I agree with everything you say. My other thing is like, is it weird to think that you can get more value for Turner on the trade market than Sabonis because for Sabonis to be most effective, he has to be allotted a certain usage, a certain number of touches for his impact to to really be felt. Whereas Turner because of his defense, and then the fact that he just spaces the floor at a position where that is still a commodity, even when you're not shooting league average from three, that teams are going to be more inclined to give up more assets for him rather than Sabonis. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, Turner basically is plug-and-play, right? Like, he shoots threes well enough, especially for a center, to fit on any team. And when you're a top whatever, you know, I don't want to get you in more trouble, but top whatever high number uh, a low number position uh, on defense, right? Like he is uh, defending centers or defending in general. Yeah, you have value on literally any team. You can play center on any team. You don't need that many touches and you'll be super important. So that may, maybe because teams will be competing in a potential trade for him that ups his value. But to me with Sabonis, it's like, sure, maybe only six teams could really use him, seven teams. But his value to those seven teams is extremely high. Like, to me, Vucevic is like his value, right? He's younger, but is probably a little bit better. And Vuce just got two first Wendell Carter and the salary. And I would say they have similar fits on other teams. And I don't think Turner's fetching you that much. So I would say Sabonis still has more value. That said, I understand why Turner does have more value than I give him credit for sometimes. New Orleans calls you nuance, and says, Tony. yeah, New Orleans calls you though and says, we'll give you Nikhil Alexander-Walker and number 10 for Turner. Oh, I'd do that. It? Yeah, I would do that. I would definitely do that. That's good because I just wrote about that exact trade that saved the Pacers <laughs> money in a three-team yeah, I deal. <laughs> I would I would definitely do that. Pay, it's pay, a great litmus test for to, you there, Dan. Pacers <laughs> have to trade up really bad. Like all my mentions are like, how can they trade up? How can they trade up? And I'm like, hey, it's kind of hard because they'd have to trade Turner to trade up, but then they just get a better pick. Like what, they don't need him and 13 to do it. So it's kind of awkward, but that would kind of solve the problem of both. So they'd get a young player and a pick. So maybe that's the solution. Thanks, Dan. There- no problem. You feel free to feel free to steal that one because when people get mad at me, I'm just going to say that Tony East Pacers podcaster endorsed <laughs> the shit out of this. Hundred percent is what I'm going to say. I did. I did. Okay, I have to go yell about Jakar Sampson. Uh, the my, one of that my favorite sense. players to talk about. For it is July first. That makes thank- sense. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me uh, on your on your locker room for a, a couple minutes.
thank you so much for the patience, Tyler, while we were talking to Tony. But we do have you on now. How's it going? All right. Thank you guys for having me. Um, just got a quick question for you guys. Um, so um, do you guys think uh, injuries have ruined this year's playoffs? Like, I, I know it's part of the game, but I, I don't think I've ever seen this many injuries you know, to the biggest stars. And like in previous years, I, I don't remember this, this many injuries, but like, what, what do you guys think? Yeah, for sure. So first, thank you for the question. Um, Dan, do you want me to let you go ahead with this one? <laughs> yeah. So, um, this is a good time to plug the hardware Knox podcast. If you haven't subscribed before, please do. Um, the last episode, I went on a rant that also went, I don't know if you can call it viral on Twitter, but there was a lot of talk about it on Twitter when I posted it. Uh, I'm a big believer in not ascribing an asterisk to any season because of injuries, because just as you mentioned, every team went through shit. I do think what's interesting about this is he kind of mentioned did injuries ruin the playoffs because you're not necessarily trying to say this title doesn't count, but it's a game like the right, Hawks I was going to the say there's a, dis- there's a difference there. Yeah, because you're, there's a distinction because the Hawks and the Bucks were both missing a star. You rather would have seen them. I've found the playoffs wildly entertaining, probably because of the randomness. I prefer not to have the injuries. And to be clear, when you look at players who have actually missed games, let's not even throw people who are just battling injuries like Devin Booker's broken nose. Um, You can build two super teams worth of players that have missed games, multiple games with injuries during these playoffs, or let's say a critical game like Giannis right now. So I, I, I think that matters. And it's a talking point in the context of, hey, Maybe we've rushed this season because it's not just about the teams that had a short layoff where you look at LeBron and AD in Los Angeles and those fans with a, a lot of those Lakers fans, I'll say, want to put an asterisk on this title. That's going to be the reason why I don't actually give that much validity, but I would absolutely, they have the shortest off season in sports history. They in the heat. So you can absolutely argue that that screw them over, but even teams that didn't have the, you know, there were teams with extended layoffs. The Hawks were among them. You had those guys all of a sudden ramp up. I'm not saying after go, basically going from, yeah, they were doing stuff, but there's a difference from doing stuff on your own in limited capacity because what were these guys doing when they had limited access to gyms, maybe equipment for the non-stars? Um, Trey Young was randomly in like a packed open gym in Oklahoma, I think, at the height of the pandemic, but whatever. So I'm not saying that contributed to his ankle injury now when we're that far down the line, but it, it definitely could have impacted the regular season or just put extra wear and tear that quick ramp up. And then the second half of the schedule for some of these teams that missed games during the first half, had them rescheduled. And then the second half just seemed like it was heavier for teams in general. So the data that's come out feels conflicting because if you look at in street clothes, I think they've come out with stuff that it says there's been an uptick in injuries. I think the NBA released a statement that basically said there wasn't, or that these players actually had more time off in general because of the pandemic Uh, pandemic time off wasn't time off. That was the, like some of the dumbest shit I've ever read. Um, I probably shouldn't be so heated about it because I can't pinpoint exactly when and where it came from. But that was an actual thing that was released by an entity that should not have released it. So there's it's a confluence of factors here. I think it sucks, these injuries. It feels like there's been more of them to these star players. I don't know what the contributing cause is. I'm just speculating, suggestive. I still don't think it's ruined the playoffs because the stories for me, um, Trey Young before his injury, has probably done more than any player in the playoffs to build up his reputation. Devin Booker probably comes pretty close, but I think he kind of turned perception 
just based off the season the Suns had. And even before then, you look back at the bubble, but he was still right out there. That's a great storyline. CP3 making the finals, um, winning in the conference finals. Just the numbers he put up, like some of the games, the Nuggets series, his Western Conference Finals game six. Um, it also kind of sucks what happens to the Clippers, where they're, Paul George basically said, we would have won if we had Serge, Zubach, and Kwai. Maybe. I wouldn't have picked them to. But what was also there is it was really cool to see a furtherance of the, I guess we call them resurgences or renaissances of Nick Batum, Reggie Jackson. Like Those were guys that really stepped up for them. So I think in there were there were interest points, tantalizing storylines that came up in lieu of having everybody healthy. But of course, ideally, we don't have these injuries. But I think it far from ruined the playoffs. And maybe I'm I, I feel like casual basketball fan is tossed around too. And I'm gonna say, look, Tyler's listening to this podcast, so you're a diehard NBA fan. If you're sensing that, then it's definitely a concern amongst the the hoops nerds. I just think there's been enough entertainment and enough interesting things to follow that. No, these injuries, while again, infinitely lamentable, they haven't ruined the playoffs for me. I'm right there with you where I wish that none of the injuries had happened. It sucks that we haven't gotten to see some of these stars. But honestly, like tonight's game five between Atlanta and Milwaukee was really the first time where I felt like there was a diminished product because of those injuries. Like, yeah, the Nets weren't at full strength. Yeah, the Clippers weren't at full strength. There were some really entertaining basketball games in both of those series, as there have been in basically everyone, I feel like almost every series has been compelling. We've had nightly entertainment just in terms of close games and comebacks, both within games and with series. We saw Kevin Durant attempt to reassert himself as maybe the best player in the NBA because the other stars in Brooklyn were injured and it produced that overtime masterpiece of a game against Milwaukee in the previous round. Like this, these Playoffs have been so compelling. They featured so many breakouts, the ones that Dan hinted at uh, and mentioned more explicitly. DeAndre Ayton is another one where, you know, we got to see him emerge because he needed to with other guys ailing a little bit. Uh, It's just one example after another of how deep the talent pool is in the NBA and how competitive and entertaining these games can be, even without the most marquee names available. So I, I totally understand The question, I totally understand why people are frustrated, upset that they haven't been able to watch some of the best players in the world play basketball, some of their favorite players in the world play basketball. But it's still been a really entertaining product. If anyone has questions, they can throw it in the chat or ask to speak. We do have other questions from listeners. The um, I already lost it. Oh, this comes from Ramesh Azim asks, was Julius Randle's season a fluke, or is this his new norm? Of course, his usage might change if the Knicks get another star. He adds in parentheticals. I think the answer has to lie somewhere in the middle. I'm guessing the impetus for a lot of those feelings are that Randle really struggled in the first round against the Hawks. Couldn't shoot to save his life. Couldn't play defense. It was just a disaster of a series for him in a matchup that, based on the regular season results, felt like one that he should have been able to capitalize upon. But we also saw so much demonstrable evidence throughout the regular season that it was legitimate growth. I mean, the the shots that he became comfortable taking, those turnaround fadeaway jumpers on the baselines, the pull-up threes, the everything that he was doing, you know, waiting until the last second of a jump to release a cross-court pass, they were high-risk, high-reward plays, which naturally creates more variance and lends itself to the bottom falling out like it did in the first round against the Hawks. 
but I don't think that that means that we can't expect him to play at an all-star or all-NBA level going forward because you could see throughout the entirety of the season how much he was able to change New York's culture, to make people around him better, to elevate his game through huge skill leaps, which tend to be more sustainable than anything else. He's probably not going to have another season where every one of those fadeaway shots that he was taking managed to find the bottom of the net, but he can make that shot. And that's the growth that is more sustainable. I I agree with everything you said. And the thing that I'm looking at, look, Julius Randle's been solid for a while. Like when you just look at dating back to his final season in Los Angeles, it felt like he was even underrated then where they were just, you know, they, they obviously ended up with LeBron James during free agency then, but he was, they had the opportunity to keep him in 2018 free agency and they didn't. Um, so it does seem like he was wildly undervalued then. The thing that I think is the biggest outlier here, it's not even the passing, just because if you put the ball in his hands that much and play him to almost 38 minutes a game, like, yeah, six assists is not out of the question. Uh, and look, he had the turnovers to go along with it. Like, his, for when you look at his usage, like, yeah, his turnover rate wasn't astronomical. Um, it was, you know, one of the better ones of his career, but just like the median, that doesn't stand out. It's the three point shot making and the overall tough jump shot making. He made more step back threes this year than in all of his previous seasons combined. And I know that shot has become more of a staple in the NBA, but when you're also shooting 41.1% from threes overall, uh, that you know that's something I'm going to be watching long-term for them. I think there's a chance that his job becomes easier if they could get him a secondary initiator next to him. Um, is that RJ Barrett? Is it trading for someone? It's probably not signing anyone in free agency that's on the market. Like, that's not... Lonzo Ball might make his like, like might help the Knicks actually run and improve the spacing. That's the other thing. This team shot the ball well from three, could stand to shoot more. And some of their lineups, you had Randall, a traditional big, and then sometimes like if Peyton was on the court um, or just another non-shooting wing, it could get a little crampy in the half court. And so there are things they could do to help him to ensure that his job gets easier and these numbers sustain. I am just specifically watching though the the three point and just overall jump shot making from him and i do think a big part of it is maybe it goes down but if they want julius randall to play i don't think he's look it i'm not a big fan of oh he plays in new york so he got more consideration if he didn't play in new york i don't know if he makes second team all nba this season i think he deserved third team all nba um and i'm not you know i don't quibble over how he how high he made it but i don't know that that can be his new normal because second team all nba implies you're one of the 15 best players in the league because the positions are wonky and everything i don't know if that's sustainable we have to wait and see I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt in the context of, hey, this could be the second best player on a really good team and maybe, maybe on a on a title contender. I don't know yet. He definitely looks like he could be like a third best player on that type of team. It's just this type of workload. It wasn't completely new. The level of shot making, though, and that's become I'm stepping over my own words now. That's the biggest outlier. And so I'm interested to see how or whether that sustains. We do have multiple speaker requests right now, so I'm going to tag in the first one, which is Jason Meredith. Welcome to the show. How's it going today? Good, good. Um, I'm actually a Knicks fan, but I'm going to ask you a question about the Trailblazers because the Knicks are just not really saying anything, so there's not really anything I can ask you. Fair um, enough. You keep re- I keep reading. Everyone keeps saying that Damian Lillard is like putting, going to put pressure on the front office. And, you know, barring really a Ben Simmons trade, what, what, I don't really know what they can do. Like what, what trades do you think the front office for the Trailblazers can actually make to really improve this team with, with outside of like a Ben Simmons trade? 
I think Ben Simmons would be target number one because the CJ McCollum plus stuff framework for Ben Simmons has been out there. If they refuse to break up the CJ McCollum and Damian Miller backcourt, I kind of understand it because I think CJ McCollum's become underrated. I will say, if you want to keep Norman Powell and you believe in Anthony Simons, he has never been more expendable to you. You're not going to pay all four of these dudes, McCollum, Lillard, Simons, and Powell. And if you can keep, if I, Adam, and if I threw this to you very quickly, I tell you, you have McCollum, or you can pay Norman Powell and Anthony Simons combined what you're paying McCollum. Are you still taking McCollum? Yes, absolutely. Is it by a wide margin? I think so. All right, fair enough. But I think you need to be more open to moving him. I don't know how attractive he is. And I think the fact that when Ben Simmons' trade value is at his nadir, when you talk to Sixers fans and people, they would rather float it into next season to see if they could reboot Ben Simmons' trade value than accepting CJ McCollum. Says it all about probably the defensive challenges he injects into your system. And even though he's, look, he's a bucket. And he's proven time and again in the playoffs that he could do it. What they could do is you have Yusuf Nurkic's expiring deal. You do have Simons entering a contract year. You can trade first-round picks um, starting in 2023. Can you do a, a smaller scale but still impactful deal that appreciably improves your defense? And the names I have circled here as just suggestions, and I don't know, how, I don't know what necessarily the framework would be. Larry Nance Jr. would be fantastic for this team. Um, when you look at everything he does defensively, can switch, can probably give you some minutes at the five, but he can also play against Nurkic or another five. Jonathan Isaac would be fantastic. Coming off that ACL injury, I'm wondering if the Magic would be willing to sell medium, where if you're giving them two firsts, Simons, you know, are you in, you probably get a third team in there to see can you get something for Nurkic um, or Covington that you send back to Orlando. Those types of names where none of them are stars but they're really high-end role players and they can help you one-on-one defensively because ultimately that's what this team lacks is Robert Covington is an excellent team defender. Um, what Portland needs is probably more of a Josh Richardson. How gettable is he? Can you do that without giving up Covington or CJ or Dame, of course? Um, they need that type of player to really boost their defense in the playoffs because there might be ways to get by with just Nurk in the middle of the regular season, but come playoff time, like you need, the Jazz showed it. They still needed someone aside from Royce O'Neal to tackle those bigger assignments, that Boyan Bogdanovich doesn't have to do it. And they have the shot-making between Powell, between Dame, between CJ. It's, I think they're closer than people realize, but they need that defensive linchpin, and I don't think it's Nurkic. I'd be willing to trade him in a heartbeat if you could get it. I have trouble seeing Jonathan Isaac being moved by the Magic, and I feel like we have to clarify that we're talking about 2019-20 Josh Richardson and not current season Josh Richardson. Because those he was like bad defensively, but that players. helps the Blazers, right? That it helps does. the Blazers because it definitely he's does. probably going to opt in, and maybe his value is lower. But yeah, I should have prefaced with and look, I'm probably talking more so about 2018, 2019, Josh Richardson <laughs> to be fair, because he wasn't exactly fantastic in Philly. Fair enough. I'm going to move on to our next speaker, though, which is Tavish Logan. And if I mispronounce that, please correct me in my apologies. But you are now on the show. How's it going? Hey, you guys there? We are here. How are you? Hey, I, I'm doing great. So I had uh, two questions for you. I know you guys were talking sort of 
long-term stuff. And my second question is sort of a hopeful question. Um, but uh, the initial question is, uh, who do you guys think the Sun should be rooting for in this next game? Do they want a longer series or uh, do they want, you know, like a quicker uh, game? How much, you know, injuries have been a huge part of the playoffs. So how much does extra rest affect their performance? Yeah, with that one, I, I do think that it is in Phoenix's best interest to have the Eastern Conference Finals go seven games because this second half of the season has been so condensed and the playoffs in particular have been so condensed where there isn't the typical, you know, occasional two days of rest. It's one day off. It's playing the next day. It's one day off. It's playing the next day. And given that you're still trying to make sure that Chris Paul is in fully functioning form and that Devin Booker has had as much time as possible for his his broken nose, potentially twice broken nose, to heal, that it does make more sense for them to root for the series to go as long as possible with Atlanta winning it. Because ultimately, they have counters. They, the Suns probably have defensive counters for both Giannis Antetokounmpo and Trey Young, unlike many teams. But I, I do think that Atlanta is the better matchup for them because they can throw bodies at everyone. They know that they can score. They know that they can defend. And ultimately, Atlanta is the less experienced team with players who you're not quite sure that you're not sure that they're quite as reliable. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add to what Adam said is just that they have even more options that the Hawks are easier in general, but they have even more options to throw at Atlanta than um philly did just because like Aiton against collins is different from Embiid against collins or Embiid against Cap- like there are just so many different things they could do and the fact that they're built to play small when atlanta goes to its all offense units there's a chance that that's a very quick series because between mikhail bridges um and chris paul with uh, andre young and then you're still gonna have jay crowder floating around somewhere out there and tory craig can help out on trey young and has been fantastic by the way how about you know tory craig going up against the bucks in the finals that's got to give Milwaukee some like PTSD because they gave him away for nothing for nothing. And, and Denver too. But, and also just if Trey Young's ankle is like, what if the Hawks make it? They won't. What if the Hawks make it out of the East and Trey Young's still injured? It's much easier to beat the hobbled Hawks even than the Bucks. So I think they match up well with both teams, but I would agree that it's the, you'd prefer to face the Hawks by far if you're Phoenix. Hey, uh, thanks, guys. Second question, real quick. Long term, I'm a big Memphis Grizzlies fan. Been a big fan for a while, and I just want to know who are the names I should look out for, the people I should look at that I should be excited for, like older players, younger players, just anyone who's available. I know you guys clearly know uh, the cap and what the market looks like. Uh, so interesting your insight, and uh, thanks for taking my call. Absolutely, thank call. you for asking the questions. All right. Dan, I'll, I'll let you go first on this one since you're much more of an off-season guru than I am. Yeah, so the when you look at free agency this summer, the, the Grizzlies can have cap space if they, if they really want it. I would argue that even though he's been terrible for them, the fact that they took on so much money in the first place to get Justice Winslow, keep him, operate as an over-the-cap the team, uh, and you can use your mid-level exception. I don't know who that puts you in play for because then you're using a tool. It's about $9.8 million this year that a lot of better teams and more glamour markets are using. What I was talking about on Twitter the other night is I'm wondering if, and I'm using this first example isn't perfect because he ended up leaving, but Paul George was traded to Oklahoma City. They convinced him to stay. And while he eventually wanted out, they got a, ha- a caps lock haul 
for him. Toronto, traded for Kawhi. He gives them one season. They won a title. The Suns, they trade for Chris Paul in a contract year. Uh, he, and I, I know a lot of people didn't expect him to exercise his player option, but given how well he's played, I think it was always on the table, you might win a title and you made the conference finals. I am hoping that this emboldens teams in non-glamour markets. I hate calling it small markets, but let's say non-traditional markets to go for it when these types of players become available or to initiate talks to force them to become available. And when I look at Memphis, they are, they're situated to do some things. If you just say John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. are untouchable, they still have just so many assets to move. And the fact that they have dual first round picks in 2022 and in 2024, that, my God, that Golden State pick in 2024 might be super valuable. And I still cannot believe that the Warriors gave that up to grease the wheels of the Iguodala dump. I would like to see Memphis this offseason, given what they've done the past two seasons. The names I am zeroing in on would be, I think one everyone's going to mention, Bradley Beal. The fact that he's a little bit older, um, has a player option, Yeah, I, that would be his technically fourth contract because he signed an extension already. Might have more of an idea of where he wants to go, turns 29 next June. Not the ideal one. The one I'm actually circling, because I don't think he's someone who would be, oh, I have to go to a Knicks team. But Zach Levine, just so in line with the windows of John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr.'s best years. So if you're willing to give up picks, salary matching, of which you have you have both in this scenario when you're looking at it. And so like a, a package just to, to kick around would be the Grizzlies get Zach Levine, the Bulls get Grayson Allen, Desmond Bain, Melton. They get number 17 in this year's draft. And then a 2023 and 2024 first round pick. Um, you you have the 2022 picks to dangle in there too. That doesn't have to be the exact package. I think it depends a lot. If, if Zach Levine doesn't ask for out from Chicago, you have to give up more. If he asks for out, maybe you're able to not give up Desmond Bain in that scenario. Uh, you also have to know that he's re-signing, obviously. And I don't think he elevates you to championship contender status the way that Kawhi did for Toronto, the way that Paul George never really did that for Oklahoma City, but he had Russ next to him. But the way that Chris Paul did that for Phoenix, it puts you on a track to where if John Morant continues progressing, Jaron Jackson Jr. stays healthy, and he still needs to improve defensively. Just like he is, the versatility is there, but it just feels like the, the reaction time, the decision-making isn't quite there yet. That gives you a viable starting point. And you still have stuff. And I don't mean to call it stuff, but you have Kyle Anderson. You have... You still have picks left over after the framework that I had mentioned. There's still you still have Xavier Tillman, maybe Brandon Clark, who you know his jump shot looks like buffering dial-up internet nowadays, but he was still good during his rookie season. You still have quality players, the means to still improve. Dylan Brooks didn't even mention him. Earned some All Defense consideration this year. You're keeping Justice Winslow in the scenario I mentioned. What if he hits? Like what if he just hits standstill threes and gives you a lockdown defender? They have options, and I would really like to see them explore them and make a quasi all-in swing. I don't want to see them, you know, give up five, six first round picks plus swaps um, for Bradley Beal. But if you can give up multiple firsts and some of the players I just mentioned to get a Zach Levine, I think that sets you up nicely. And I think the Grizzlies are just, I didn't even mention Jonas Valanciunas throughout all this, who might've been or was their most consistent player this year when you factor in the John Morant injury. So Memphis is in a good spot. I think that they would probably prefer to slow play this, but I don't know. They're even though they still feel far from the very tippy top of the West, a Zach Levine deal for me. And could, first of all, 
is there a more exciting duo in the league than a John Morant, Zach Levine backcourt? That would be so Adam, fun. Like, yeah, it would be so, so that's fun. the end. That's the end of my rant. There, those are and also those are like the only two stars that you can fathom becoming available. I don't like Siakam for this team. If Fred Van Fleet became available, that might be like kind of interesting, but the fit with John Morant. Um, oh, you know, I like that. Maybe fit, it's, actually, it's not terrible. I just don't know what you're giving yeah. up for. For the, offensively, it's perfect. Defensively, I would right. just wonder because Fred Van Fleet has to then cover a lot more. You know, he's going to experience that in Toronto anyway because if Kyle Lowry leaves, like his defensive workload changes a little bit. So, uh, you know, but yeah, I want to see Memphis make the win now trade. It doesn't have to be on the level of, you know, what the Bucks gave up for Drew Holiday necessarily because they're not that close, or what the Nets gave up for Harden, obviously. But give me Zach Levine in Memphis. I'm still on team slow play the hell out of this. If you can get Levine or Beal for a reasonable price, then do it. That's I'm fine with that. Like if, if the asking price for Levine is one or two of the younger guys, one or two picks, fine. Make that make that win now move. But I still just look at this roster, which assuming that you pick up the Justice Winslow option, has 14 players under contract for next season. And I'm just intrigued from top to bottom. Now, we talked about this when we were doing the most underrated player on each team within the Western Conference. And while Jonas Valanciunas was ultimately my pick for Memphis, because I, I still think maybe this is changing after how he played at the back end of the season, that he might be the most underrated player in the NBA. You can throw a dart at this roster and find an underrated player. You know, you mentioned so many names, and we really didn't even focus on Desmond Bain and if Brandon Clark turns things around and Xavier Tillman Sr.'s potential impact and Grayson Allen has shown flashes and DeAnthony Melton has been so effective in smaller spurts. This roster has so many intriguing pieces with top-end pieces that have significant upside. Valanciunas was the most consistent player on the roster, probably the MVP of this season for Memphis. Morant has all-NBA potential. Jaron Jackson Jr. still has all-NBA potential. You have a lot of guys who are valuable role players. You're shaking your head about Jaron Jackson Jr., but we still we still have seen enough in smaller spurts that I don't think it's that unreasonable to think that he has that kind of growth potential. But even if he doesn't, and you know he's still on the younger end, like he's he turns 22 in September. Like we can in no way discredit how much upside there is there. This roster has so many intriguing pieces that I think it would it would be a mistake to not see it out unless you're swinging for the fences. But that would be my question. Where are you getting the that guy from? You need the second guy. And in today's NBA, the second guy probably isn't going to be Jaron Jackson Jr., even if he peaks. Someone who doesn't really create their own shot. And I don't look, if if you tell me he's going to become someone who guarantees you a top 13 defense and is going to bomb threes like he did during his sophomore year. I get it. You still need another guy. And when you look at this roster, where is that guy coming from? By committee. I think that this is the rare team that is deep enough with two-way players that you could potentially have a different guy stepping up on different nights. Because we you just described the, the 2019 2020 Toronto Raptors, and they they peaked. They weren't enough. That's just my. I think if you're Memphis, maybe that's yeah. fine. But like, I would aim for something bigger. I mean, I, I think if you if you slow play it, you're looking at a higher variance range of outcomes. But I do think that that outcome includes a potential championship down the road, assuming that you get the growth that we're expecting here. It's it's a riskier play, but I do think that that ceiling would be there. 
if you told me you wanted to wait a year before making the all-in play so you get a better feel for what Jaron Jackson Jr. is, I kind of understand it. But then you're in a situation where, yeah, there's always a next star up, but Bradley Beal and Zach Levine are suddenly off the table in that scenario. And so yeah, it's harder to identify. I mean, how many stars in the last few years have we seen become available who we had no way of expecting them to become available? Well, there's so fair, multiple if, examples if, from every offseason. I, I do think that there's enough youth and upside here that you're not ruining the hand that you have for potential trades, especially because that 2024 Warriors pick could only become more valuable as time progresses. And we see that the Warriors aren't making a leap back towards championship contention. They might, but it might look more valuable too. You talk about a team that needs to trade for Zach Levine, Golden State's up there. If you're telling me that you want to wait a year before making the all-in play, as long as you recognize that we're approaching a point where they probably need to to make some sort of double down outside of the current roster. I think this, this conversation is a lot different and has a lot more urgency next year. All right. I'm, I can, I'll accept that. I'm not about it. It's satisfactory. That's usually have, good enough for me. Uh, we have other questions here. Let's get to see if we can get to them for a couple quick ones. Fred asks, is Zach Collins' career over? Um, Zach Collins to date has missed exactly half of all possible regular season games that he could play in. Uh, he had the left shoulder injury that hurt him at the beginning of the 2019, 2020 season. He came back, um, but he was eventually out for the season because of a left ankle injury, which surgery in August then kept him out for all of this season. He ended up refracturing that ankle recently. I'm not going to write off his career, but like, I would imagine with these injuries, he's probably not going to be the defender that he projected as, which was someone who could capably guard fours and fives and move on the perimeter. And then before he went down um, last season, was it? I can't remember what the season was, but he shot well from three. It was in such a limited sample. It was two we seasons ago. Or yeah, yeah, we yeah still, last season. We still don't Just even have... Games. We still don't even have like a reasonable sample to be like, oh, he's a floor spacer. That's very much theoretical. So I don't think his career is over. But I'm very curious to see like where his peak ends up panning out, and I hope that he's able to return because that look that sucks. Like you're young and you, there were high expectations, and I think this wouldn't have changed everything in Portland this season. But like he very much, Zach, healthy Zach Collins would have made a difference for them on defense. Yeah, it's way too premature to say that his career is over. I mean, we're talking about a six foot eleven, twenty three year old who in brief spurts has shown rim protection ability, the ability to switch on the perimeter, and the ability to knock down three-pointers. And that's what teams want from big. So even if he's diminished in each of those areas, when he does eventually make his return, there's going to be a roster spot for him somewhere. I mean, we're talking about a league that just signed Michael Beasley to a summer league deal. Like, (laughs) there's there's going to be a chance. The Blazers, no less. (laughs) Um. Couple. Let's try to get to these last two questions. Unless we have any other speaker requests that I think are good notes to end on that we offer from our listeners. Um, Lima's asks CP3 is the latest star to shine with mid range. How much has spacing helped stars rely on this low percentage shot? CP3 can snake to the elbow with ease. He'd bump into a teammate in 2007. Now this, before you answer, because I'll throw it to you, is a very high level mid range question. I love the way this is framed, as opposed to oh. Like why is the mid? Why do people think the mid range is dead, or is CP3 proof that analytics are stupid or something? And that's not to say Master underscore Red was saying this politely, but this is just this is the mid range conversation that we can have. Is my point? I'm totally on board with this question and the assumptions that it's making. 
I, I do think that there's some validity to the idea that the proliferation of three-pointers has spaced out defenses enough that it's a better spot to be shooting from. Ultimately, the analytics are looking at the points per shot attempt, and that area of the court is naturally still going to be lower than it is from a few steps back, which is why there's so much of a tendency to take more three-pointers. But no one has ever said that those are always bad shots. And yeah, I mean, like people like Chris Paul, like Chris Middleton, you know, there are, there are plenty of examples. CJ McCollum, uh, if you can make those sh- shots, then you should take them. And yeah, I do think that the ability of bigs to set screens and then either slip and free up that snake or pop out to the three-point arc and draw out a big, it does create more space. So I, I totally buy into that idea. I would love to see data that helps confirm that. Somebody far smarter than either of us needs to do that. But I buy the I buy the premise. I reject the notion that there's anyone in the world who's smarter than you. And I, I agree with everything you said. I think Seth Partnow, the athletic, when he was on this podcast, put it to me the best where it was just mid-range shots aren't bad standing in the mid-range. Uh, if you can make them, obviously, all shots are bad if you can, if you can't make them. But standing like a in dunk the attempt for me is a terrible idea. Right, highest percentage uh, shot on an NBA court, but like for me, that's a terrible idea. So if you're standing in the mid range, and this was alluded to in the question from uh, Limas, was that if you're, you're going to run into a teammate in 2007 or in 2021, if your teammate's Ben Simmons because he was just chilling in no man's land and wasn't a wasn't a threat to do anything when he was outside the dunker spot, so. Uh, that it, it the catch and shoot looks if you're going to stand still you're more valuable beyond the arc because in theory it forces your defender to be pulled more outside the paint and allows players like cp3 to get to his spots and of course you need to be hitting those looks like kevin durant whether it's contested or not cp3 whether it's contested or not devin booker whether like shoot it like that's but it's for the role players like you don't want these catch and shoot middies you don't want them standing around there and you definitely don't want someone who's bad I don't want Ben Simmons dribbling into a bunch of mid-range jumpers, is my point. Like, just because they're unassisted looks doesn't mean that they're good looks. The other thing that I feel goes vastly under-talked about is if you have a homogenous offensive style, it just inherently makes it easier for the defense. So just by expanding a shot profile and forcing defenses to, at least in the back of their minds, consider the idea of guarding mid-range jumpers— that opens things up for cutters, for backdoor cuts, for those slips off the screens. It opens up a lot of offense. Really quickly here, this is actually the final two questions because this is not worth a discussion. Um, the Cooper, V Cooper, Cooper asked, may I have an insane Shea Gilgis Alexander stat, please? You have come to the right podcast, my friend. Here's your insane Shea Gilgis Alexander shot. This season, before he injured... Um, the plantar fascia in his right foot. Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant were the only other players who averaged over 20 points and five assists per game while shooting as well on twos and threes as Shea Gilgis-Alexander. What's incredible about this efficiency, he shot 54.7% on twos and 41.8% on threes, is that 87.1% of his made buckets went unassisted. That is the highest share of unass- unass- of of made field goals that went unassisted by 439 players who appeared in at least 20 games this season. That is wild. And I think that is what renders the Shea Gilgis-Alexander superstar trajectory valid because he can be an offensive hub. If you're shooting that well on unassisted looks, 
uh, it's I mean it's game over. So he is fantastic. Do you have anything to add before I get to our final question? My favorite one is that his scoring average, his rebounding average, and his assist average have gone up in each of his first three seasons, and that is despite a minutes-per-game decrease this year. I don't feel like we've seen the best of SGA to this point. And I also think because of his gradual progression, it's where his season, this season for him, feels like less of an outlier than Julius Randle's season for him. And I'm not trying to say Julius Randle's was an outlier, but just the type of role he's had in the past versus his past progressions in his previous two years— that's why it just feels so much of a given that he's this good to me. I'm with you. Idris Mohamed Kundami, I really hope I didn't butcher that too much, most underrated NBA free agent this offseason. This is a damn You're question sti- for sure. So I'm staring blankly t- waiting for your answer. I would have two here. The first of which is Frank Nielkina. Um, it's so it's it is a Nick. I actually think Alec Burks has a chance to be wildly underrated. He hit more than thirty seven percent of his um spot up of his spot up of his pull up threes this year, and he hit some really big buckets for the Knicks in the fourth quarter. Judging by efficiency and his volume and the the uh, the number of looks that he took that were unassisted, which is basically a given in the Knicks' crunch time offense, he was just one of the he provided the biggest bang for buck among a ton of players in the league during crunch time. Just one of the most efficient weapons there. And so I think, no, you don't want him running your offense. And he can deviate from the offense, which is why, you know, the Knicks, where they're not, like, trying to run all these just super intuitive sets, maybe they were a good fit for him. But as, like, a secondary guy off the bench, or even if you just wanted to start him alongside a Julius Randle or just another shot creator, uh, he can, you know, he can be really good for you. And he's not going to cost a ton. So I think between this season and at least his stint during – um, his time in Golden State, he didn't play so well in uh, where did he finish the season? Philly last year. Um, he's really up his value. I'm curious to see what he gets. And then Doug McDermott is my other one. He is so scalable in what he does. There are defensive challenges of playing him for sure, but he can give you minutes at the three, uh, three and four spots. He shot 38.8 percent from three this year, and that sustains whether he's taking, you know, standstill threes or he's off motion. He's become a reliable finisher when putting the ball on the deck in drives. That was an element to his game that he added. Um, he averaged 1.57 points per possession as a cutter this year, which is that, that, that sounds and reads like a typo for anyone wondering to scale. And he just doesn't cannibalize touches. Uh, almost 85% of his made buckets this season were assisted on. And the efficiency, just for a guy who takes as many threes as he does, off the charts, better than 60% on twos. And as I already mentioned, 38 plus percent on threes the only other players to shoot 60 plus percent on twos and 38 plus percent on threes while burning through as many shot attempts overall can you even guess one of them adam there were two I other players definitely cannot and this is not it's not cannot. An, it's not going to be anomalous in the sense that oh he's he's in the company of stars it sort of fits the the plug-and-play scalable mold mikhail bridges and michael porter jr like this is, I think Doug McDermott probably gets the full mid-level exception, and it wouldn't surprise me if he got more, which is why I think Indy, who won't pay the tax but needs to also keep him, probably has to dump salary unless they want to lose Doug McDermott this offseason. So Alec Burks and Doug McDermott are my two most underrated free agents. And this was done, by the way. I did look up the McDermott stats while I was talking about Alec Burks. This was off the top of my head. So I'm sure we could build a list that goes on and on and on. Yeah, there, I mean, there are plenty of options. I mean, you can look at someone like Dennis Schroeder, who's probably going to get $60 million and thinks he's worth $180 million. So, like, he's underrated in his own mind. 
Uh, I, would I think it my shock answer, you? Though, it, I'm sorry. Would it shock you if Dennis Schroeder ended up signing somewhere for the mid level? Because I think a lot of his value no, is rooted really. in the Lakers have no other options. But if they go out and like complete a sign and trade and say screw the hard cap, I'd just be curious to see what his market is. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's totally fine. I I, I kind of I'm kind of leaning towards Lonzo Ball here. I, I know he gets a lot of attention, but I still don't think that people recognize how impactful he was during the second half of the season and the growth that he's shown. Whether he's going to be re-signed in New Orleans or end up in New York or somewhere else, I, I I just feel like he's a drastically better player than the perception of him allows for him to be. And to me, like that's what the underrated part means. It's where there's a, a large variance between perception and actual performance. Uh, if we're talking about someone who might sign a, a, a contract that is far too low for their actual value. Maybe Jamichael Green, who's 31, but has shown that he can work in a lot of different lineups and has defensive chops and the ability to space the floor on offense, to switch on defense, a valuable role player. Um, I, I don't see him signing a monstrous contract, but he can have a significant impact on any sort of contender. So as you said, there are a bajillion options, especially in a free agent class that is lacking in star power at the top. Uh, just by nature, there are going to be a lot of bargains out there. Yeah, I mean, like a, even a Bobby Portis or a Ken Birch at this point, those are all names to keep an eye on. And I, Spencer Dinwiddie could sign a below-value contract just coming off an injury and a bad three-game sample. I kind of expect him to get the bag. But yeah, I mean, if you're getting Spencer Dinwiddie for under $16 million a year, you've won. Um and I, I would agree with you on Lonzo Ball if you think that there's more half-court initiation in him. And I honestly don't, but I could see why people think that there might be. So, I would, But he's, I feel like he's going to get near max money, and so that might prevent me from throwing him in there. Which this totally was great. Fair. This was great. Thank you to everyone who meandered in and out of the room for the past 71 minutes. Uh, we are Hardwood Knox. So if you haven't checked us out, search Hardwood Knox on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. YouTube. We're on YouTube as well. Check us out. Subscribe to us. Five stars only, please, on iTunes, and it helps us out a bunch. Leave a review. That helps us out even more. Download every episode, and again, we're everywhere. So subscribe to us. Until next time, we leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the single most underrated free agency in the history of NBA free agency, apparently, the eventually $20-plus million-a-year player, Lonzo Ball.